Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. Our guest today is the Reverend Charles Cowan from Trinity Parish in Wilmington, Delaware. Hi, Charles. How are you doing? Hey, Ivy. It's good to be with you. I'm, I'm doing great. Good. So my first question is, because this season is called Bumper Sticker Bible, what do you think of that sort of phrase? Oh man, I, I I both love and hate it. <laughs> I love it because it's everywhere. I see it all over. So uh, one of the cool things or weird things I should say about living in Delaware is I think maybe with the exception of Maine, we are known for having more vanity plates. Um, it's a really big deal here. And so I see not only bumper stickers, but sometimes like license plates that have Bible verses on them. And wow. as a Bible nerd, I love it because I love seeing all of these things all over the place. But I also think reading the Bible one verse at a time is just a really, really awful way to engage with the Holy Scriptures. Mm. Um, I think you have to be able to look at the book as a whole. You, I mean, each book of the Bible as a whole, the whole canon of the Bible as a whole. Um, so sometimes... I'll admit, like if, if I see a, a pickup truck going down the road that just says John 316, I'm like, what do you really believe, sir or madam? Um, mm. Yes, absolutely. Do you think they're useful, though? Do you feel like having those sort of bumper sticker scriptures are doing whatever that person is intending them to do or no? I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it, it does if you're... Um, at the gas station and somebody says, hey, why do you have that on your vehicle? Why is that important mm -hmm. to you? Then that could lead into a great conversation. I actually have a friend who, she's an Episcopal priest, but she was not wearing her collar and she stopped to get gas and the guy at the pump next to her noticed she had an Episcopal church bumper sticker and they got to talking and now they're married. And that's, <laughs> so I think, sure. Oh, wow. I don't have any on my car. I have some other bumper stickers. Um, but I, I don't know that, that um, slogans that are just out there to try to poke at people are helpful. But if they spark conversation, sure, they're great. Yeah, that's what I aspire now, to find the love of my life in a gas station. You can do it. Anything's possible. You can. <laughs> I mean, anything is. So we are talking specifically about actually one of my favorite verses in totality so i'm really happy that you picked this this is one that my family really also digs into so i'm really excited so this is matthew 20 which is truly i tell you if you have faith as small as a mustard seed you can say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move nothing will be impossible for you. 
or at least that's the version that my Google Bible gave me. Um, <laughs> and I feel like most people shorten it to um, sort of like the faith of a mustard seed. Nothing will be impossible for you. They usually cut out, I feel like, the mountain bit. Because mm-hmm. I did not know there was a mountain bit until I Googled it because of this conversation. Um, so what are your just like initial reactions to that Bible quote? Well, I'd be curious. Um, can I? Am I allowed to turn questions on you? I'm curious why it's your sure. favorite. Why it's my favorite? Um, so I really like the parables in general. So I have two favorites out of like the whole Bible, which is the parable of the sower, mm. which I really like. And it's mainly because like- I heard a really good sermon on it. And then the other one is this one. And I really like the idea of the faith of the mustard seed because it it sort of shows you don't this is gonna sound weird but you don't have to be all in like you can still question and have doubts and be like what is up with this and i feel like this quote it's very episcopalian of me (laughs) this quote i feel like gives you sort of license to let your faith grow in an organic way and can be slow or not very fast, but it gives you the room to question and doubt because you just need that little bit, that little spark. You don't have to like be an ocean yet or a full tree. You sure, can just sure. be this the small, the small spark of it. Oh, that's a beautiful reading of that. I I'm glad <laughs> I asked you because I'm gonna use that <laughs> next time I have to preach. I mean, this this idea um comes up in um, or at least this bigger story that it's in of Jesus mm-hmm. healing this boy, it shows up in Mark, it shows up in Luke. Um, and I, I think that that's a way a lot of people read it. And, and it's a good mm-hmm. reading, right? Is this idea that I cook a lot and I love mustard seed. I always put it in my cabbage. It's tiny, mm-hmm. tiny, tiny. So I'm with you. I think you're absolutely right that God is able to do great things even with the tiniest bit of faith. And I think it also like building on what you said about, about you don't have to be all in, you don't have to be perfect. It's who's the actor in this. Is it, if I have enough faith, I can do all the things or is it, do I have even the tiniest bit of faith that God can do these things? Mm. And I think that's sometimes the struggle with this verse. You know, if somebody said to me, Charles, if you just prayed hard enough, you could move that mountain. Well, I don't know that I do believe that. I think that sounds a little bit self-serving. Um, but I do believe that if I have enough faith in God, God will get me over the mountain or keep me here on this side of the mountain where I belong. Mm-hmm. I have to trust that God's agency is what's that's what's moving there. So do you think the mountain is a metaphor? Like, Do you really think he's like, we're going to move a mountain? Well, I think Jesus is, um, I think he's playing with a lot of things here. And f- and if we back up, so uh, what made me laugh a little bit is you have this beautiful, lovely uh, reading of it that I think is totally valid. And <laughs> in this passage, if we if we back up a little bit to the 1714, it's this, mm-hmm. this comes within the story of Jesus 
curing a boy um, and are, are really exercising a demon for this boy that sounds like mm -hmm. he has epilepsy. He falls into fire. He falls into water. Jesus is angry with his disciples mm -hmm. right here. So Jesus has just been up the mountain of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. He's up the mountain. I think mountains are on his mind is to back to your question. Mm -hmm. Why is, he, is this allegory? Is it metaphor? Well, yes. And he's literally just come down from a mountain and his, and the other disciples you know, Peter, James, and John are with him, but the other disciples just still don't get it. And mm -hmm. he's furious. He's like, this man came to you. He's suffering. His son's suffering. He came to you. I told you, you have the power to love people and heal people and proclaim the good news, and you couldn't do it. I was mm -hmm. only gone long enough to say hey to Elijah and Moses, and I come back and you people still don't get it. You don't even have the faith of a mustard seed. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you have at least that much faith, people. Um, I, I angry Jesus in this one. He's just irritated. Um, so I think that the the mountain is he's literally pointing at the mountain behind him, saying, "I was just yes. up there." Context clues. Yeah. Oh man, why do you think Jesus is so angry at that point? I think that we get to see a really, really human Jesus here. Mm -hmm. The doctrine of, of the incarnation, the, the Christian faith teaches us that Jesus is fully God and is fully human. Mm -hmm. And we can't deny either side of that. And I think here it's that human side that's coming out. I think that Jesus, he's, he's told the disciples at this point um, that he's going to go and die. Mm -hmm. um, the son of man is going to be handed over and and will be put to death and and they don't like hearing that that's not what they want to hear of their messiah and he keeps telling them i'm not gonna be here forever and i'm teaching you everything i can and they still aren't getting it and i wonder if that anger from jesus is really just he loves these people so much these people who get it wrong over and over and over <laughs> and he loves them and he wants them to succeed, he wants them to do well. And I imagine that human part of Jesus too is really anxious that he's gonna have to leave them. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine that's what parents feel when their kids go off to college. You know, it's, mm -hmm. I've taught you everything I know, please don't mess this up. And we know that almost every student's gonna go off to college and go to some crazy party and do a keg stand mm -hmm. and, and other stupid stuff. And that's part of growing up, <laughs> so. I, I think Jesus is feeling all of that. He's sad, he's angry, he's worried, and he loves them so much. Mm. So this is going to be, my next question is like a little hard. So I'm going to pre-apologize for it. Oh, I love it. Which, Hard's good. What does faith mean to you? Faith is hard to define. I, I read a, this isn't mine, I wish it was, I read a, a commentary that said, we have a tendency to confuse the word faith with confidence. Like, I'm confident something will happen. I don't think mm -hmm. that's what faith is. Faith is placing trust in God. And it's not a faith that I know the outcome. I think it's saying, Faith is a posture of humility for me. It's saying, I don't know everything. I'm going to strive to know what I can. I'm going to strive to love what I can. And faith 
is a way I live my life. It's a posture of my life that turns toward God saying, there's something greater than me and I'm going to do the best I can. And my faith is that God will not abandon me, that God will help me correct when I'm wrong and God will celebrate and, and bless when I'm right. I think faith more as a, a verb. It's something you do. Mm. I had, I was somewhere and I was talking to someone and it was like another younger person like me. And we were talking about like climate change and like just the state of the world. And she at one point was like, you know, I just, anytime I get really anxious, I just stop because I know God has like this great plan. And I was just so struck by like, the raw belief in being like God's got this because it there's we're always inundated with like another reason we're all gonna die tomorrow like <laughs> mm-hmm. so just to have that sort of raw like I know God's got this I was like that is a that is a different level of faith that I have and I appreciate witnessing it yeah and I I think climate change is such a a great example so I I live in Delaware. Uh, we have a coastline. You live in Rhode Island. You have a coastline. Um, I used to live in Newport and we're near where you are. And I worry that Newport might be underwater one day. The Episcopal camp here in Delaware that I love so much. Here's a plug for Camp Arrowhead. Mm -hmm. Amazing place on the Delaware Bay. And we were in a visioning session for the future. And somebody said, what's our vision for camp in 50 years? And we said, we need to start addressing climate change now so that this camp isn't underwater. And so I think faith in this is, I do have faith that God mm-hmm. has uh, agency in this, that God will love and protect us. I also think that God in the book of Genesis creates human beings with the explicit purpose of caring for this creation. Uh, mm. If you're, if you pray, pray, prayer C uh, in the, in right to prayer C yeah. says um, you made us rulers of creation. And, and one of my parishioners were using that right now said, Oh, I hate that. We aren't rulers. God made us as stewards of creation. And I said, I agree with you. And, and Genesis is actually pretty clear that God gave this to us to care for. And so if we don't do our work, there's consequences. So I think the faith in it is climate change is real, I believe. Uh, Human beings contribute to it. If human beings don't change, it will continue and there will be disaster. And my faith is that God won't abandon us. Um, But I do think there is, there are repercussions for our actions. And, and that's, I think that's a, a component of faith that, that's really hard. If, if you come to a Christian tradition thinking that, well, if I do X, Y, or Z, I'm rewarded. Uh, you know, I get to go to heaven or I have a blessed life. Or if I give to my church, God's going to make me rich. Well, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> uh, there's sin is real and the, and the repercussions of sin are when we don't take care of the earth the oceans rise. It's not God punishing us. It's just how this works. God's given us the tools yeah. <laughs> to not do it. And if those oceans ride, God will be with us. Mm. Definitely. Does that make any sense? I feel that it's a little bit of a random. It's, it's faith is not an intellectual uh, journey. It's, it's a, it's a posture of trust in God. Yeah. And I think that's what is 
is so hard about it is this idea that if I do X, Y will happen. Like, it's not that structured in a sense. It's very much like you just are sort of believing that someone will be there to catch you in whatever way that means. And I think what's also hard is that faith also includes when um when it doesn't turn out the way you want it some i i think it was my grandmother used to say like you don't have a good relationship with god if you can't be mad at him yeah and and i really like that i'll echo I, that yeah sort of that idea that like you can have faith and still be let down absolutely and that those don't have to be mutually exclusive ideas yeah, I, I one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible is in in the book of Job, where Job, I mean, everything awful in the world mm-hmm. that you can imagine, and then some happens to him, and his friends come, and they're really terrible friends. They give him awful advice, mm-hmm. and finally, Job breaks. Is like, God, why, 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 why? And God's response is, Where were you when I laid the pillars of the earth? Mm-hmm. Um, so Job gets mad at God, I think, and God, I don't think God chastises him for it but he asks the god asks the question and says you don't know i am so much bigger than you and all of this is so much bigger than you it's it's frustrating that you don't understand and you're not going to understand at least not in this life that's a really unsatisfying answer but i think it's the one that god gives us it's true now joe poor dude Poor dude, he had it rough. <laughs> <laughs> he really, he really did. Um, so I want to pull up um, a quote that comes a little earlier, seventeen, um, which is you un the this is just the translation I have, um, which is you unbelieving and perverse generation. Jesus replied, "How long shall I stay with you? How shall how long shall I put up with you?" Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. And that just seemed really aggressive for New Testament. I feel like Old Testament is like usually aggressive, but that just felt very aggressive. You're you're on to my favorite heresy to dispel. It's Marcionism. The Marcion was this um, theologian in the early days of Christianity. It's uh, It sounds like Martian, like Marvin the Martian, but it's M-A-R-C-I-O-N. This is the most pernicious heresy out there. And, and basically it says that there are two gods in the Bible. There's a mean Old Testament God and there's a loving New Testament God. And I'm picking on you, Ivy, because everyone okay. self-included falls into this trap. It's so I, one of my favorite games I love to play is pull quotes from scripture and say Old Testament, New Testament. Ooh, and that's so, a good one. I will take their swords and beat them into plowshares. Peace. That's the Old Testament. You faithless and perverse generation. How much longer must I put up with you? That's that's Jesus. Um, yes. Some great one-liners. Like the wheat shall be separated from the chaff and the chaff shall be tossed into unquenchable flame. Um, <laughs> it is harsh. And I also think, I don't want to try to explain this away because I would be hurt if Jesus said this to me. I really yeah. would. And I think we're seeing Jesus at his very, very human level where he's 
he has shown the disciples what he can do. He's cast out other demons. He's healed. He's told them, um, I'm sending you out and I'm giving you the power to do this. Mm -hmm. And he goes up that mountain with Peter, James, and John, just like Moses went up the mountain. Mm -hmm. And Matthew's all about painting Jesus as the new Moses. And he comes back and they still don't get it. And he's, you unbelieving, perverse generation, when you gonna get it? Did I stutter? Um, and it's, not, <laughs> it's not loving Jesus, but I think it's also, I love my mom so much. We are super close. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life my mother has turned to me and my brother and be like, what, what, what is wrong with you kids? What are you doing? Are you, are yeah. you stupid? My mother will say that to us sometimes. <laughs> I've told you and I've told you and you don't get it. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. And I think it's it's that anger I talked about before is certainly because of, I think, Jesus' own anxiety about he knows he's leaving, his own frustration with these disciples who don't get it. I think he's also looking at this father who has the son who is suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think Jesus has such compassion for this father and son. And he's looking at his disciples and said, I, I've given you the tools to comfort these people and you have aggravated their pain. Mm -hmm. And I might be reading between the, the lines here, but you know, the man comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Um, he suffers terribly. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And so it's that's a fact they could not cure him and i also know that when i go to hospitals and visit people or i have a friend mm -hmm. right now who's home sick or recovering from a surgery i cannot take away his pain i don't know how to do that i have a lot of faith mm -hmm. but i have not mastered the art of miraculously curing people mm -hmm. what i can offer him is i went and visited him and i held his hand or I call him and I say, how you feeling? And he says, I feel like crap. And I don't say, oh, look on the bright side. I say, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to be yeah. with you in this crappiness. And I think that the disciples, if I read between the lines, they didn't even do that. They, they didn't offer this man any comfort. They just tried to cure him and failed. And so I think Jesus is angry for this father. He's like, guys and gals because i happen to believe there were women there with them um what what are you doing here's a man and his son and they're suffering you got to trust that god will care for them and you have to show them that love mm -hmm. i think this quote is also hitting me harder than like normal ones because there's a lot of times in the bible where jesus is like kind of fed up and a little mean like a fun mean but like still mean it's like me fun and, mean. yeah yeah no i'm very much fun mean so i understand that but i feel like the reason this one when i was reading it hit me is because i like feel like that's what he would say today if he came like if jesus suddenly like showed up in a pulpit and was like yes. here I'm like oh like i feel like this is what he would be saying to us right so uh, somebody sent me a, a TikTok the other day um, knowing that I am a great fan of the Pauline epistles. And it's this guy, it says, point of view, if if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the churches in the United States of America, and it's 
this guy's writing and he goes, dear church in America, y'all in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> I think you are so right. I mean, I do a lot of work. Wilmington has an extraordinarily high gun violence rate and I can hear the guns from my office in the church. I have buried uh, members of our parish who have died in gang violence um, and sat with many, many families and I can't help but think if Jesus were to walk into that, he would look around at all of the churches and all of the community and say, you faithless and perverse generation, what are you doing? I mean, this is, this is uh, January 30th, and I haven't checked the statistics since yesterday, but as of yesterday, there were more than 50 mass shootings in the United States in 2023. That's more shootings than days. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't happen in other developed countries. And so Jesus absolutely would look at us and say, you faithless and perverse generation, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, that God is greater than this, that love is greater than violence, this wouldn't happen. But you've lost mm -hmm. the faith. You've, you've seen your neighbor as your enemy rather than as that person deserving of support, of help. Mm. Definitely. So with that mind, why do you think people gravitate towards this? Because what I've, I've found doing this is I feel like as soon as you put it in context, whatever is like right before the really line that everyone loves is like something slightly harsh or something where like once you get the context, you're like, whoa, like. So why do you think people gravitate towards this specific passage? Well, I think I think what you said before is why I love this passage. And it's because of what you said. If it's it's validating and or that's not even the right word. It's encouraging to say mm -hmm. you don't have to be there. And let's not forget who Jesus is calling faithless and perverse. He's calling the disciples, <laughs> the mm -hmm. 12, <laughs> the ones who's yeah. They will be embroidered in all of our kneelers and put in our stained glass windows. And these, <laughs> these flawed people. So if Jesus could love them, Jesus loves me, definitely. I also think there is, in a world that makes no sense, in a world of violence mm -hmm. and destruction and climate change, uh, we have to put faith in something other than than what we can see. And so that, that bit of faith is is helpful and the idea that that all things are possible and i want to say that there's a good way of reading that through god the things of god are possible i think there's also uh a american individualism that can be really dangerous that people could gravitate toward mm -hmm. this passage to say well as long as i'm a good christian or i'm a good person i can do anything and that's a really dangerous reading of this it it does not take into account the privileges that people have because of their race, gender, socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so I, I think that's, those are some examples, I guess, of a, attraction to the, the passage that I think is helpful to our faith and attraction to the passage that's really a perversion of what it's trying to say. Mm. Double-edged sword. Absolutely. And this is why you never read the Bible with just one line. Because like you said, right before this is you faithless and perverse generation. Immediately after it, 
the son of man is going to be betrayed into human hands. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. The raise is good, but kill him? Huh? Yeah. Okay. Since you brought it up twice, I was going to let it lie the first time. But since you brought it up twice, I'm going to ask this question. Then what do you think about, like the lectionary that the church uses because that totally breaks up the bible um i the lectionary is my best friend and my worst enemy <laughs> <laughs> what the, the gift of the lectionary is it um it does as a somebody who preaches weekly i don't get to ch choose what i preach on and so mm -hmm. it's not just the bible's greatest hits according to charles and the lectionary, for the most part, keeps us in one gospel in each year. So right now we're in Matthew's year, which is year mm -hmm. A. And so if you only come to church once every six weeks, it might not be as helpful. But for, for those who either come to church or read the, the lectionary readings weekly, it tempers that. Um mm -hmm. Sometimes the lectionary can take things out of context for sure, but I would hope that a good preacher, if they were given this passage, would tell the congregation, hey guys, this comes right after the transfiguration. Um, my parishioners know that I can't help myself. I always tell what happened before and after the part we've just read. Um, mm. Because I think that's just, it's an irresponsible reading it's also a good reason why we need to read the bible outside of worship and outside of sunday mm -hmm. worship because scripture in worship is doing something that's important and wonderful and studying the bible uh, as a devotion is doing another thing hmm. what what's the difference um i think that i think that um the way we read it, so I'm, I don't remember the number because I'm bad at it. There's, there's a psalm that is, you know, by, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept and the people are really, they've been, their land has been conquered. They are mm -hmm. utterly decimated. They are miserable. And the psalm says, oh, that God would take your little ones in Babylon, take your babies and dash their heads against the rocks. I would never read that in Sunday worship. Um, because mm. I think Sunday worship, particularly in our Episcopal tradition, it's a sacramental encounter with word and bread and wine, which is the body and blood of Christ. And so I think that the the word of God that we hear in the scriptures is then translated to that word through a sermon and the and the congregation's response and prayers. And that psalm uh, would, I think, take us away from the nearer presence of God. Mm -hmm. and when I pray, when I, I don't know if that's a Psalm I would even pray, but when that's a Psalm that I read and meditate on, it reminds me that um, the Psalmist that wrote that, I think God would rather they not dash babies' heads against rocks, but I think God also hears that and says, wow, you are suffering. Mm. You are broken and angry and, and feeling distraught. And I think it's important that we know that. Um, 
I, I take this, uh, this analogy straight from Bishop Nisley, who has said in, in several sermons, I've heard him preach that the Bible's sort of like the family album. These are the <laughs> stories that we tell. These are the stories of mm-hmm. God's people. And so it's like when you sit down at Thanksgiving, I remember the story about great uncle Al and the time he caught the 20 pound bass. Uh, it says something about your family values. So this collection of stories teaches us who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, Praying and meditating on them daily is a way of engaging in that story. And I think Sunday worship in particular, the scriptures are there to illumine uh, the movement of the, of the Holy Spirit in our lives uh, so that we can be changed through that sacramental encounter with Christ and then go out into the world to live and proclaim that good news. Was that Did that help you? I used a lot of, of generalities because it's, it's that- a nuance. <laughs> No, I appreciate it. And that went a little off track, but I was just like, I had to ask what you thought about the lectionary. People hear me all the time say, ah, the stupid lectionary's done this awful thing today. (laughs) Whoever listens to this podcast who determines who's on the next lectionary committee, I want on that committee because I have opinions. Yes, that's always me. I'm like, I want to be on that committee because that's really the Episcopal Church committees. Committees. Yes. I, I was um, um, in my, a former parish. I was the chair of the uh, nominating committee and I would always get up in front of the church and say, hi, um, in the Episcopal church, we have a committee that nominates people to committees. If you'd like to be on the committee to nominate people to committees or be on a committee nominated by a committee, come talk to me. <laughs> oh man. Um, so to get us a little more back on track, do Oops. you think there no it's good uh do you think there's any significance that this is from the book of matthew because i did not think so and then i started googling about this and i found this article about how matthew was a tax collector and no one liked him (laughs) like that's a very distilled version of what the article said but that was the thesis statement i would say (laughs) Well, I do think it's, I think each of the gospels that we, our canonical gospels have a different flavor and that's, mm-hmm. it's good that we've got different versions. Um, and so I, I guess I, I would invert your question a little bit. I think when I read uh, these stories, I'm always saying, okay, what is Matthew's context and what is Matthew's mission. And so um, one of the things that Matthew does a lot is I mentioned before that Matthew's really painting Jesus as the new Moses. And that's, we have this mountaintop experience. Matthew also says, or Jesus says in this gospel that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that's really, really important theme in Matthew. I think it's in the other gospels, but Matthew's speaking to people his audience are clearly either Jews or uh, Gentiles who are very familiar with the Jewish law. And so there's this big question of how do we live? And, and so I think that, that part of Matthew's faith journey is saying, hey, guys, also remember where you've come from. If you look to our history as Jews, when we were enslaved in Egypt, God did not abandon us. When we were wandering in the pro- in the wilderness, God did not abandon us. When we got to the promised land and there were people there, God did not abandon us. When we were exiled in by Assyria and Babylon and now exiled at home by Rome, God is still with us. 
And so I think that that makes that mustard seed statement so much more powerful if you know all those stories as I think Matthew's people did. Um, you know, the other, the historical context of this gospel is mm -hmm. scholars sort of debate, was it written before or after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? And I, I tend to think it was probably written after, but even if it was right before, they knew something bad was coming. The place of worship mm -hmm. was destroyed, uh, decimated. And they're like, oh no, how do we worship when the place of sacrifice is gone? And mm -hmm. I imagine if I were in that place hearing, you got to have bigger faith than that. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, even the temple can go away, but God does not go away. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, I think it's important not to live in the historical encounter position of Matthew, but I think it's important to start there and then start imagining, well, what would that feel like in our world? Mm -hmm. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also read that Matthew was completed before the acts were completed. Is that real? Or is that like Google real? Probably. I mean, it's dating the Gospels is so hard. So we know that Luke and Acts were written by the same person. Uh, the scholars sort of disagree mm -hmm. as to was Matthew written before Luke or after or at the same time. Um, I it makes I wouldn't argue it if somebody said that, but I don't know that they could empirically mm -hmm. prove it. <laughs> to what end? I wonder. What was why was that important to this person? I don't know. Wait, I will read you the whole thing that they said. Um, oh, pretty much what you were saying that it to show that it was for a Jewish audience, meaning it was likely the first gospel written probably before the initial outreach to the Gentiles that started in Acts. One estimate is that Matthew was completed by 35 AD on Peter's visit to Cornelius. And Acts occurred in AD 38. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not good. I don't number real good, but I'm, I'm, I think it was much later than that because the, the temple was destroyed in 70. And I think most scholars are going to tell you this was written about the time of the destruction of the temple. Mm. So I, well, but I do, well, their point stands though, that I do think that Matthew's gospel is more looking at a Jewish and Jewish informed mm -hmm. audience. And Luke's gospel, it tends to look toward a more Gentile audience, although those lines get blurred. Um, because it's it's in both of them. But it is it is interesting though, the way the way the gospels engage with the Hebrew scriptures. They all engage with them, but I think each gospel engages in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. I will also say the website I'm reading that from is literally called lordsguidance.com, which I just think is a great name for a website, personally. It's a bold statement, but hey. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so thinking of the mustard seed, do you think that by using the analogy of a seed and not something else, because there are a lot of small things, that that insinuates that your faith needs to grow. Oh, I definitely think seed um, 
is 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 yeah, so, uh, lending itself to growth. I mean, I'm trying to, I can't remember now if it's Luke or, or Mark where it talks about the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds and yet it grows into a bush and the birds find its nests and its branches. Well, it, mustard plants don't grow into trees like that, but they do grow. <laughs> and and yes. Jesus loves a seed metaphor. And I think that makes sense in an agrarian society. Um, mm -hmm. But it is amazing. I can remember especially when I was little, I remember our kindergarten class. I don't remember what kind of seeds it was. We planted it and to see from that tiny thing we put in the dirt, a shoot come up out of the ground. I mean, that's, that's powerful. And I think that the thing with seeds from, I'm, I'm not a, a biologist. I know biologists can explain exactly why it happens, but if I just stare at it, there's, there's no reason a big plant should come out of a mustard seed. It's tiny, tiny. Mm -hmm. And can't we say the same thing about us? The fact that yeah. I'm a six foot one and a little bit man and I started as just like a little bit of DNA. Some from my mom, some from my dad. And, and I've become this, um, that mm -hmm. growth. And our faith is that way too. Our faith is always growing and changing. Uh, the faith I have today is a very different faith than I had when I was a child and I imagine in another 15 years or more, it'll be a different faith then as mm. wisdom and revelation come. Definitely. Um, are there any other things you're thinking about this that I haven't yet brought up that you're like, Oh man, I was hoping she'd bring this up. Well, you've, you've done such a great job of, of really setting this in context and 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 looking at it. You know, the, the one piece of this that I've always struggled with, and, and it happens in other places in the Gospels, is that if, if I have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible. Well, what about the times when we have faith and what we want doesn't happen? And... That could be as, as simple as when I was a little boy, I wanted to be able to fly. So it was like, I have all the faith that God will make me fly. And then I fell off the monkey bars. Um, and I learned that that's not how it works. And look at somebody I love has cancer and I pray for them and I pray for them and they die. Is it my fault? I don't believe it is. And it's easy to fall into that trap to say, well, either my faith isn't big enough or God didn't love me enough or... And I think that's that's the troubling thing of passages like this, is it, it could be read as bad things happen when I don't have enough faith. Um, and I think that's, that's a twisting of what yeah. Jesus is actually saying, but it's an easy place to go. Mm, definitely. So I have one last question for you, which is if you were to design your own bumper sticker what do you think you would put on it oh man that's a hard one that's a hard one i don't think i'd put words on it as much as i love the bible i really really do mm. i'd want i think images um and I don't know what that image would be. I'd have to pray on it and and maybe talk to people. But I, you know, something I have all over my house because I lived in Rhode Island for so long and I love <laughs> it there. I have anchors everywhere. 
Yeah. And the anchor of hope means so much to me. And, and, you know, that's taken from Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Um, We have this as an anchor for a soul, firm and secure. And so I think if I were to design a bumper sticker, it might be the word hope with an anchor, or maybe just an anchor. Um, Mm. And maybe Adele's lemonade next to it. That's very Uh, Rhode Island. Just for (laughs) extra measure. I miss Rhode Island. Could you tell? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. If we wanted to connect with you, how would one do that? You can find me on Instagram. It's Charles Lane, my middle name, Charles Lane 2002. Or you can find me on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Charles Cowan. There might be a dot in there, but just Google it. My fa- Both of those are public profiles and they're very easy to find. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been fun. They lived not only in ages past, there are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea, in church or in trains or in shops or at tea. For the saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology, a ministry of St. John's Cathedral in Rhode Island. We would like to thank our producers, Ivy Swinsky and Taylor Wilkie. Special thanks to Moa Conde and David Hines for our music. Our sponsors, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. Follow us at Tea Time Theology on all social medias.